Well, we're, this is week two of our first Peter series. And I mentioned last week, but I'll say it again. We're living in, in just a, a fascinating time for a lot of reasons. I mean, we've got, got missions to the moon. We've got missions to Mars. I, I cannot get enough of watching SpaceX rockets land on drone ships in the ocean without anybody in them. Like every time one of those pops up, I have to watch it because it just blows me away what humanity has accomplished to be able to launch a rocket and then land it however many miles away on a moving platform and it doesn't even blow up that often it's crazy right but a little closer to home like this this cultural moment as well that we're living in is is unlike anything that i've ever seen and i suspect you can maybe nod along with me that this is a different time than anything any of us have seen in our lives of course, there's similarities, as, as, you know, as Solomon wrote, there's nothing new under the sun, but it's, it's, it's different. It feels a little different. I, part of it, I think, is the, the internal stresses we put on ourselves, we talked about as the external stresses of coming out of, you know, two and a half years of COVID and, and all the things, right? There's all these things, and it just has seemed to result in so much pent-up anger and hostility and division and just like everybody's looking for a fight. Nobody wants to have a conversation about competing views or, or, or try to understand one another. It's just, I'll make you understand by getting louder. That's how we seem to want to do it these days. And it doesn't matter what the issue is. It seems like any single issue is just, just a tinderbox just waiting for a match. Just, just let me get started and they'll blow it up, right? And it's not just kind of, sometimes in the church we're like, yeah, the world, it's a disaster. We've got a good thing we're in here. It's not just out there either. It's within churches too. It's, in, it's within church families and denominations and associations and all the things. Just everything, the, the, the temperature just seems a little bit hotter. A couple of Sundays ago, we said that Jesus is the only hope of the world. And if he's the only hope of the world, he has sent his church into the world to be his people and his light to the world. And not light like forest fire, burn everything down like the world wants to do, right? Like just get angry and hot. But it's the complete opposite. I'm going to take his presence into the world. But let me ask you this. Is following Jesus today in Canmore or Banff or wherever home might be, is it just easy all the time? Just smooth sailing? You know, I, I came to Jesus and all of a sudden my finances sorted themselves out. My marriage got better. My kids behave better. All the things, right? I'm healthier. I, boy, I'm just so glad. I think we know that none of that's true, right? I think Jesus speaks into all of those things, but is it easy and just smooth sailing to follow Jesus? Let me ask you a few questions. Last weekend, our town held its first Canmore Pride Festival. Now, does the Bible say anything about how we use our bodies, gender, sexuality, any of these questions? Yes, of course it does. And we're going to get there. Not this morning, but we'll get there. We live in, in generally a really affluent part of the country. We can see all sorts of scales, whether it's cost of living, whether it's housing, all the things, right? Does the Bible have anything to say about how we use our wealth? We, we live next to a reserve. There are many broken families and, and, and lives and, and, and generations of trauma and hurt that are the result of 
many things. Does the Bible speak to any of that? And much of our culture puts lots of that generational trauma right at the foot of the church. Well, if the church hadn't done this thing, imagine. Is it easy to live with that weight, that reality? Another issue sparked up through the course of the summer is down south, one uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned, and so the abortion issue has come up big again, even in our local Alberta politics. And the question is, does the Bible have anything, again, to say about what we do with our bodies? The world might ask, how can you refuse someone's right to choose? That's a great question. Does the Bible speak to that? Politics, I don't want to talk about politics from the front. I will never tell you who or how to vote from the front, ever. But whenever I see, I can't tell you how many mailers lately and social media posts and news articles of how dare you consider to vote that way. I don't need to tell you who sent those to me because they both sent them to me, right? How dare you consider voting that way? How dare you vote for them, right? Does the Bible tell us how we should vote? It speaks to it. Uh, Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors, pastors, thought leaders, sometimes he writes just a little bit too high for me, so I like it when someone interprets Keller and brings him down to my level a little bit. But there was a, a quote he put out in a, in a recent book talking about how we, how we reach and kind of integrate with culture. And he said, Jesus has some strong words on a lot of things. This is kind of my paraphrase. He said, Jesus has some strong words on issues like this and this. And if you agree with Jesus on these issues, chances are you'll stamp yourself and you'll be a Republican. He's in the state, so transfer it to whatever color you want to appear. But Jesus also, he says, has some strong views on this issue and this issue. And if you also have some strong views on this issue and this issue, probably you'll be voting Democrat. Okay. And he says, but also, Jesus has some strong issues on issues that are neither Republican nor Democrat. So what do we do? First of all, here's the hint. Jesus did not come into a two-party system. That's, that's another conversation for another day. But the Bible and a biblical worldview speaks to how we uh, build culture. And that's kind of the goal of the political system, right, is to build culture. So does the Bible speak to that? Now, in all of these issues, and we could all find dozens more, in so many ways, if we kind of step forward and stand on a biblical or a Christian view of these things, it seems like lately we kind of have a target on us now. We're, we're labeled as, as, as hateful or bigoted or uh, hostile or offensive or even violent. And in this kind of, kind of day and age, it seems like there, there seems to be more consequences for having a, uh, we'll call it a dissenting worldview, one that doesn't just sort of toe the line of culture. And it's heavy. And it's weighty to, to know that if, I, if people knew what I believe, it can cost me. It can cost me in my family. It can cost me in my business. It can cost me in my relationship. It can, there's all these costs. So how do you deal with feeling like an outsider in your own town, in your own culture, in your own sort of space? Well, here's the thing. I'm not so smart that I just came up with this question for the very first time. In fact, the early church dealt with this sense, this feeling as well. And we've got this letter from the mid-first century written by a guy named Peter 
that circulated around a, a number of Gentile churches, not Jewish, but non-Jewish, Gentile churches, followers of Jesus, in Asia Minor, which we would now call Turkey. And he was writing to a church that was, that was uh, under the rule of Rome. They were part of the Roman Empire, but, but persecution of Christians hadn't really kind of lit up yet to the extent that it would come soon. But this church, as they tried to obey the apostles' teaching and Jesus' teaching, they found themselves at odds with the culture, big time. All of a sudden, they, they were at odds with the religion of the day. The Romans were, were actually charging and, and trying Christians as atheists. How, what do you mean you don't believe in any of our gods? That's not okay. But they were going against culture with family values. A husband and a wife are equal partners in a marriage? That's crazy talk, right? They were going against the cultural values as far as, as, as family values went and, stat, and social class and status. What do you mean you're going to care for someone or, or eat with someone that's, that's a, a lower caste than you? They were going against the cultural views of, of marriage and purity and relationships, all these things. And so there's a lot of ways that this letter Peter wrote 2,000 years ago could be written directly to you and I today. So how do we deal when we face with opposition or, or alienation or, or even suffering? Let me suggest Paul gives us three uh, sort of hints or three ways in this first section of the text. First, we, we praise God for new birth and for living hope. We praise God for what he's done. Second, we, we persist, we carry on, we persevere. We, we persist in the midst of his refining work. And third, we practice gratitude for the moment that we're in, for the time that we are alive. Let's jump in the text. 1 Peter 1, verse 1 and 2. We, again, we looked at these last week, but we'll just kind of skim across them today. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the chosen ones living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, May grace and peace be multiplied with you. This is a, a really standard first century letter greeting, but it's so theologically rich. We spent the whole morning in it last week, right? A couple of things that I do want us to, to recognize, though. Once again, Peter's the one that wrote this. I love Peter. I can identify with Peter the disciple. I can identify more with Peter before the resurrection, I think, than Peter after the resurrection. Peter was the guy who was just sometimes really impulsive, he didn't always think everything through. He got, got his mind on something, and he just went after it. Peter was the guy that, at Jesus' arrest, he grabbed a sword and cut off someone's ears trying to defend Jesus. And Jesus was like, couldn't I have called down 50 legions of angels? I, Peter, I don't need you and your bad aim. Peter's the guy who denied Jesus three times, even knowing Jesus, ever having walked with Jesus three times. But then the resurrection happened. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter's the guy who preached a sermon and, and the masses around said, okay, well, they were cut to the heart. And they asked him, Peter, what do we do? He said, repent and be baptized. And 3,000 people joined the church. It's a good message. Acts chapter 4 later, he's in, in front of the courts and they say, how can this ordinary, uneducated, and that wasn't meant to be like derisive comments. This is a fisherman. How can he speak so well? How can he be so uh, speak of these deep things to us? And it says, but they recognized that Peter and John with him had been with Jesus. 
So I'd like to continue to identify more and more with post-resurrection Jesus, or Peter, recognizes someone who has spent time with Jesus and who is kind of punching above my weight class, if you will. But he's written this letter. Ordinary Peter has written this letter to the Gentile churches who are living as exiles. They haven't, they haven't moved. They haven't been cast out of their homes, but they really feel like it's no longer home. And he reminds them, he calls them chosen. They're God's chosen people. And not chosen haphazardly either. Verse 2 reminds us that this was God's plan. Hey, you're part of this plan. Because I know how you feel as exiles and strangers and aliens, but you are chosen ones. And don't forget that. It's so important that we, we know and we grow in our understanding of who we are. And that's what this introduction reminds us, that we are chosen ones. That we've been made in the image of God. And if that's true, which it is, then we don't need to look anywhere else for our hope, for our identity, for meaning, for purpose, any other cultural identity markers, we don't need them because God has knit us together in our mother's wombs, declared us loved, declared us beloved, and he gave us our identity. And so now I can look at all the things that our town says I need to have in order to be fulfilled, whether that's the extra square footage or the renovation or the new car or the new skis, the snow's coming, skis, the new, any of those things, the relationships, whatever else, and say, you know what, all those are, are gifts from God and good things that can be used for good. But what makes me worth, have worth, is who God says I am. So we need to like hang on to that. And that is just littered throughout this whole letter. He continues. He says, all praise to God, or another, another translation might say, bless the Lord, or just, just keep praises on God, our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by his great mercy that we've been born again, because God raised Jesus from the dead, and now we live with great expectation, or with, with a living hope. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, he says, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So the first thing he wants us to do, Peter tells us to do, is to praise God for new birth and for living hope, to remember whose we are. We praise God because he has poured out his mercy on us, and it's been made available to us, his grace and mercy. And we have been made new. We've been born again, the text says. And all of this has been uh, given to us because Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's all Jesus' work. It's not my good stuff. It's not your good stuff. We haven't earned this in any sense, but God has done all the work for us. And so if this is true of us, if we have been made new, then we will feel like strangers and aliens and foreigners and exiles and all the, all the adjectives that we find in this, this letter because we're not living like this is our home anymore. We have a new home. We've been made new. Now let me ask this. When you hear the words made new, what comes to mind? Maybe, maybe a bunch of things come to mind. I've got a, a, an uncle on Naomi's side, my wife's side, who restores old cars, hot rods. He's got this truck that's it's unbelievable. And a little while ago, on his social media post, we found that he found his next, pro his next project. Couldn't drive the thing to his shop. He had to push it onto a flatbed, 
but it's in his shop. He's just tickled about this rust bucket, let me tell you. He is pumped. Now, if he's going to restore a vehicle, if he's going to make it new, do you think he's going to stroll down to Canadian Tire, pick up a spray can of Tremclad, and just give it a, give it a dousing and say, done? Probably not, right? Probably not. Think about driving this way down Bow Valley Trail and the, the Teepee Town neighborhood. And I know that the development is a bit of a hot-button topic in Canmore, but bear with me here. We've got some of these lots that a, a person comes and says, you know what, I'm going to make something new on this lot. When a developer shows up, do they pick this house and say, oh, you know what, I'm just going to paint the trim and plant a flower out front, and it's new, it's amazing. Ever? No! They bring the bulldozer in. They get that old thing out of there. It's gonzo. They dig a footprint that's twice the size and twice as deep and twice as high and all the things, right? New. When you read made new, from now on, I want you to think of rust bucket to hot rod. And I want you to think of Inville housing in whatever older neighborhood, whether it's here, whether it's Calgary, wherever. Think of bulldozed and something brand new. That's what we're talking about. More than that even. A new church on this lot or somewhere, right? We're not just going to put a coat of paint on the outside. Jesus, please help with that one. It's a it's total transformation. This is not just a, well, I grew an inch this year, so I guess I'm a new Sean, right? Paul talks about this also in his letter to the Galatians. Galatians 2.20, he says this, I have been crucified with Christ. You don't come back from that. You don't go through crucifixion, put a band-aid on your wrist, and say, okay, well, let's keep going the way we were going, right? He says, it's no longer I that lives. What Jesus did in me, it's, it's completely different. But Christ lives in me, he says. I had a friend, um, I still have a friend. He's in, I knew him from Edmonton. He was a youth pastor at Edmonton. He's out in Ontario now. And we were at a, a youth uh, retreat together, and we were both youth pastors, and he told a story about this verse and how it was one that really impacted him as a kid, especially as he got kind of to his early, early teenage years. And, you know, those are, for teenagers, those are, those are hard years, right? 12, 13, 14, 15. It was for me. It was for him, too. But the Lord got a hold of his heart with this verse. And so one day he had in his, in his room, he had his, his bed, he had his dust to do homework out, and and just to really drive this home and remind himself of what Jesus had been doing in his life, he took out a sheet of paper and on it he wrote in giant block letters, Judd is dead, and stuck it on his wall. And it like, like it drove, uh, it was so meaningful to him. You can imagine what his parents thought when they walked into this room and thought, oh, what do you mean he's dead? Judd, let's talk. But it was just this, this driving force of, no, the old me is finished. There's no rust left. We've replaced the rust. We've, we've bulldozed and dug out the, the, the faulty foundation, and something new is here. And so we, we no longer look to this world for our hope. We look to the one we've been made for. And we live with great expectation and living hope because God's mercy brings new life, and with it brings adoption into his family. That's what inheritance means, right? If you're not attached to a family, there's no inheritance part. But look what's in this, this priceless inheritance in this passage. It's one that's kept. It's secure. 
It's pure. It's imperishable. It's unfading. It's out of the reach of decay. I, I love living in Kenmore. I do. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a dream for us. We thought maybe someday we can retire and end up in Kenmore. And so that, that God would bring us here at this stage of our lives is amazing. Love it. All the things that Canmore tells me I should have to make happy, none of them will make this list. That kitchen reno, it's going to have to be redone sometime. My bike, got a lot of paint chips on it. Some of them from it crashing on me, some of them from just banging around, right? My skis, they rot, all these things, they all fade and ultimately relationships come and go. You guys know that if you live here, right? We're made for another world, and there is a priceless inheritance waiting for us as well. So how do we deal with opposition and exile? We remember that we're chosen, and we praise God for his choosing. And we praise him for our new birth, and we praise him for his living hope that he's given to us. Peter gives us something else, too. We want to persist in the midst of our exile. And it says... uh, it says suffering there too, and it says suffering in the text. And I, I've, full disclosure, I've deliberately avoided the suffering word when we've talked about this. And there's a couple of reasons why. In my 40 years in Canada, I can't say that I've ever suffered because I've said I have a Christian. That's coming, I think, maybe. I kind of hope not, but. But I've never suffered because I'm a Christian. I know that, that I've got brothers and sisters in, in Africa that have, and in India that have, and in China that are, and, and all over the world where, where persecution is, is happening and people are dying every single day for their faith. But as well, depending on where we want to put this letter in history, I, I, I'm not totally sure that this church was suffering persecution yet either. And so I, I think, I'm confident that Paul is writing to this, this feeling of alienation more than physical persecution at this point. So that, that's why I've kind of landed on persist in the midst of, of exile, even though the word suffering kind of comes through our translation, and we can talk about translation another time. But what we do recognize is that in the struggle, in the midst of the pressure, that's where we're really formed, isn't it? Let me read starting at verse 6. It says, you rejoice in this, even though for a, a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So there, there's hard stuff coming, and it's part of it. But look what he says. You suffer in various trials so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though seeing him not, or not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's saying it's, it's, it's coming. But we look forward, we go through these things for his glory. Now, when, when I was growing up, there were, there were some things, and probably for you too, there were some things that just came easy to me. I don't know why, it's how I was wired, how I was built, whatever else. There were some classes in school that I could just kind of coast through and I could, you know, write well enough to get away with getting marks that were good enough, all these things, right? There were some, some sports that, that I, I could do well enough to consider myself a bit of an athlete, right? The problem with just kind of coasting through things is when times get hard, it's really easy to just quit. I cannot tell you, when I hit 
calculus in high school, it was over for me. It was over. And I just wanted to run away. When uh, I played baseball through elementary, and I vividly remember as a boat grade sixer being hit by a pitch, and that was the last time I think I hit a baseball because I was too scared to stand in there, and, and then I, I quit because it was hard. However, there are several other things that are more important to me than calculus or baseball that I've learned that if I put in the effort, if I put in the time and the blood and the sweat and the tears, as they say, it, I, I grow and I develop. I worked at a golf course for a couple of summers in 2008 and 2009, and, and as you know, being on staff there, I got to know the pros, and one of the guys said, hey, let's head to the range, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a lesson. Free lesson, love it, great. So we go out, and, and I was like totally self-taught, right? I read Golf Digest, I watched it on the weekends with my dad, and then I went to the field and I swung the club around. And James said to me, Sean, you've got a swing, but it's not good. And we can fix it, that's no problem, but this isn't gonna be, this isn't gonna be fun. Uh, I need you to say, we're looking at surgery here, Sean. Don't think tweak, think surgery. But if you work at it, you'll get better. Hey, surgery, I guess it is. And I got a little better, I guess, but that's, time has escaped me to continue to play golf. Uh, but I know that as well that for uh, meaningful relationships, especially for my marriage, it takes work. It takes effort. It takes hard. It takes us going through hard things to come out stronger the other side. And I have hopefully learned, trying to learn, starting to learn, that the most profitable things in life come with struggles and having to work through something. And it's exactly the same with our faith, which I would suggest is the most important thing in our life. It needs to be tried. It needs to be tested. It needs to be strengthened. One of the reasons that we see, if we, if we watch trends and we, we, we see um, like youth groups grow up and many, many kids walk away from faith when they hit high school or university, it's because they just kind of coasted. They didn't have to deal with the hard questions. And, and, and that's, that's on youth pastors. It's on, it's on all of us. But if we haven't had our, our faith kind of refined and tested and tried, then when we hit hard times, it gets, it gets hard, and it's easy to walk away. So our faith needs that. And this, let me, I've said it before, I'll say it again, Trinity, we want to be a place where hard questions can be asked. I don't, I don't want to dodge any of them, not purposefully. I mean, I don't have all the answers, but we can work through these things together. We were, we were never promised an easy life with Jesus, were we? That's one of the, 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 the biggest lies that's come out of North American Christianity in the last 50 years. Now, if I just give my life to Jesus, again, my finances will start out, my marriage will be great, my kids will, you know the rest. We're never promised an easy life. In fact, he promised us that we would have troubles, right? John 16, 33. But he also promised that he would be with us. So our faith, which, as Peter wrote in verse 2, was known ahead of time by the Father, made holy by the Spirit, made possible by the sacrifice of the Son, grows through the struggle. And in these trials, it is so important for us to remember that God's just not punishing us because he's vindictive and angry and mad and just, it's got to go somewhere. 
but he's refining us because we are chosen sons and daughters. And a loving parent disciplines their kids. They set boundaries for their kids because they know that outside of the boundaries, there will be consequences. So we, we praise God for new birth and living hope, and we persist in the midst of struggle. And finally, we practice gratitude for the moment that we're in. We practice gratitude for the moment that we're in. You know that for thousands of years in the history, in human history, people looked ahead to this time that we're living in. Ever since the day of the fall, back right, right at the beginning of the book, probably page one or two, maybe three, depending on how big your text is, ever since Genesis chapter three and the promise to Eve, all, have been, all creation has been anxiously holding its breath, waiting to see what God was going to do to overcome sin and evil in the world. Waiting to see how God would rescue his people. I was reading one of my morning kind of devotional times this morning. I was reading this uh, passage by Paul Tripp. And he says this. I love it because I'm impatient. He says, When I read through the Old Testament, I am blown away by the extent of God's patience. I often thought if I were at the joystick, he says, Given the degree of my impatience, Adam and Eve would have fallen in the morning, Jesus would have come in the afternoon, and then died and risen again that evening. But God's ways are not like my ways. Year lapse upon year, decade upon decade, century upon century, until literally thousands of years pass before Jesus comes to deal with the disaster of the fall. And yet scripture says that Jesus came at just the right, right moment in Romans 5. And this means that for all those years, God was preparing a world for the coming Savior. And we get to live in that reality that the Savior has come. Look what Peter says in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, Jesus' saving work, that he had risen from the dead, he says, The prophets who prophesied about that grace, that, that the grace that would come to you, searched and carefully investigated they inquired into what time or circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was, was telling them about when he testified in advance the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Our whole Old Testament paints a picture of our need for God to come and overcome sin and evil. What, we read this in the New Testament, right? The point of the law was not for us to find a way to be holy, but it was to show us just how, how broken we were. And even the best of the best of the best of the characters in the Old Testament had massive, huge, fatal flaws, didn't they? Think about, there's some kind of easy ones to cherry pick. Think about David, right? We're known as the best king of Israel, a man after God's own heart. Did he get everything right? Absolutely not. He was an adulterer and a murderer and a liar. But God used him. But he points us to our need for someone else. Think about, about Moses. Did Moses get everything right? He wasn't even allowed to enter the promised land. Think about Abraham, the father of Israel. Did he get everything right? Well, he lied about his wife being his sister twice. That's not a good thing. Like, they all have fatal flaws. They all point us to our own need for someone else to save us because we cannot do it ourselves. We get little hints and little shadows of what's to come, but it, it's not there until Jesus and so Peter's telling his hearers there and us today that for thousands of years, people have searched and they have 
gone after God and they've said, God, what? when? How long, oh Lord? When is this going to come? What's going on? You, you've told me that you've got a plan. I'm not seeing it yet. What's happening? They've longed to be in this moment that we live in. And it's amazing. In our day, the time that we're in now, all those prophecies that were carefully laid out through the whole Old Testament have come true. All the promises that God made to his people have been kept. And even more, they're not just kept for God's Old Testament people in Israel, which was never the plan, by the way, for God just to pick one people, but they were to be a blessing to all peoples. But now, remember, Paul's not writing to the Jews anymore. He's writing to Gentile churches. This is a plan for everyone. All the promises are for everyone. God's saving work is for everyone. The, the, the inheritance stored up, kept pure, undefiled, uh, away from all the things, is for everyone who calls on Jesus' name. Verse 12, the prophets were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you, and for me, and for us. And now that good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Hallelujah. And all of this is so wonderful. I love this mental image that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. In the Old Testament, we do have some pictures of the angels and, and, and how they gather around the throne. There's some, some imagery of the throne room of heaven and, and these angels who spend eternity. And all they want to do is sing holy, holy, holy to the Lord, right? We've got these kind of high, lofty images. And I don't know how to talk about heaven being above earth, but this, this text is like those angels have taken, they don't say they've taken a break because they're going to continue worshiping, but they've kind of like crept to the edge and they're looking over the fence like you're looking down to the bottom of a, of a gorge or something if you're at maybe the Grand Canyon you want to see the river. But it's like the angels are looking over the edge saying, it's happening. Watch this. It's happening. And we get to live in this time that all creation has been waiting for and that heaven is longing to see. Now, I am not proud, but I'm, I'm ready to admit that I don't have this all figured out yet, that I have struggled, maybe especially through this past summer, and often felt out of place as an exile. I, I've, I've considered my worldview and what I believe to be true and how in, in some areas especially it just seems so out of sorts with what culture tells me I should believe and should want to be true. I've often felt out of place at, at, at watching others collect the treasures and the toys of this world and think, man, I'd like that, and I'd like this, and how do I get some of that? I, I've wondered how uh, some views that might be labeled conservative, whatever, there's so much like baggage to our language, so don't think political party, just think like, I don't, even, I don't even know. But how do these views mesh in a culture that seems to have moved beyond many of them? How do, how do, I, how do I hold even a biblical worldview when, when the world tells me that's old-fashioned? Old and I can tell you, if I take the title of exile, and stranger, and alien, it's a, it's a heavy burden if we're just there. Because you know what comes if I, when, this is for me, maybe you can identify with it, if I dwell on the gap and feeling like an angel, uh, uh, not an angel, an alien or a stranger, 
the next question that comes to mind is, well, is it true? Is it true? Can I, am I, am I right giving my life to this? Can I believe any of it? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm just wrong. Paul doesn't call, Peter doesn't call us just aliens, does he? Or exiles. The greatest comfort to me, especially over the last few weeks, preparing for this series, they were chosen. This is part of God's plan. I don't know how it's going to work out. And I don't know what he's doing with some of this stuff, but if he is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do, okay, feeling like a stranger, it's not so big a deal. Giving up this life is not so big a deal. Because by God's amazing grace, he has made a way for me to be a part of his family through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So how do I deal? Again, I still don't get this all the way right. Hopefully I'm working, getting closer, and I'm making progress. How do I deal with feeling like an alien, a stranger, an exile in my own town? I want to praise God for his work, for my new birth, remembering that I've been made for another kingdom and that he's my living hope. I want to persist in the midst of his refining work. I know that these questions are only going to make me stronger because I'm going to have to think about what's going on and the Holy Spirit will give me more wisdom because I'm going to ask for more wisdom. I'm going to praise God, I'm going to persist, and I'm going to practice gratitude for the moment we're in. Jesus has come. It's over. The battle's been won. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning and for this text. Thank you for all the things that you are doing in and through your church. And I pray that, um, yeah, this morning and as we continue to walk through this letter in the weeks to come, that you would just remind us of who we are and of whose we are. Thank you that you love us. Jesus, thank you that you came to make a way for us, that you lived a perfectly righteous life, obedient to the Father in every way, and yet you went to the cross to take the consequences for my sin. And you died the death that I deserved, that you were raised to life on the third day, conquering Satan's sin and death so that I can be called the Son of God. We pray all this in your name. Amen.